0: Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast?
1: Probably for a little over a year. It's been my intention and my desire to play play for Ireland.
0: Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.
2: Now then, you're welcome along Sunday Papers, so lots to get through. Uh, front pages, back pages, there is sporting interest. So I will run you through the various headlines. The Mail on Sunday, have a picture of Seamus Coleman after his brilliant strike. They call it a freakish goal. On his behalf, I don't think we're denying the intention. So uh, freakishly brilliant, maybe. Coleman delivers the headline. Ireland star holds Everton out of the relegation zone with outrageous winner. They were 1-0 winners against Leeds. There's also uh, plenty of stories on the front pages across the board on new GAA president, Charlotte Burns. He has a dream of United Ireland. He talked about that in depth. Sunday Independent, very similar. Uh, Lee, it must be said, picture Coleman. They go with Captain Fantastic. Coleman strike lifts Everton out of relegation zone. And then again, it quotes from Charlotte Burns. GAA will fully support Irish unity, says Burns. Sunday Times, Seamus Coleman again, Captain Fantastic. Great picture on his (coughs) 401st Everton appearance. Uh, Captain Fantastic, Coleman fires home winner as Everton beat Leeds. There is quite a lot on the uh, Qatari interest in Manchester United. And the Sunday Times tell us that the Qatari group could still make a bid for Spurs. So, in effect, the Qatari money is siphoned off in different Areas and under different headings, and so it would seem that Qatari money can very much end up at PSG, at Spurs, at Braga in Portugal, where they took a uh, 20% stake in October, and obviously at Manchester United, where they put in a £4 billion uh, bid. Lots of pieces on that inside. Uh, Sun Sport, uh, picture of the Glazers. Uh, Glazers will not do a cut price deal it's 6 billion sterling or they stay. The general uh, bidding is around the 4 billion mark across the board. Glazers say 6 or nothing. I'm sure they'll find some accommodation one way or another Uh, Sunday Mirror and this is uh, Jim Ratcliffe and he's saying I'll make United best in the world and give fans a say so too he's definitely trying to appeal uh, to the popular vote I suspect the Glazers won't pay a blind bit of difference to that aspect and then uh, Qatar could make Reds a plaything, says Brendan Rodgers. He was talking ahead uh, of the game this afternoon. And he says that money can distort reality and wants uh, outside influence only if it's for the right reasons. And uh, he says it used to be the richest guy in the city who owned his local club. It was a great honour. Those times have changed. They sure have. Uh, that's Brendan Rodgers on the back page of The Mirror. Uh, I... The relevance to this uh, slot, I don't know, but certainly the uh, well as he's been referred to across the board over the last couple of weeks, GA fraudster or GA conman. Uh, the front page is awash with various stories concerning uh, that issue. Uh, for instance, there's an exclusive in the Sunday World, Patrick O'Connell, page ten on the inside. It's referred to very much on the uh, front page. And there's more detail inside. I'm just unsure in terms of privacy how uh, much detail to go into here. But suffice to say, the man in question, according to a family member, his mental health is in a dire place, as you might imagine, and uh, is seeking professional help at the moment. So that's uh, the update on the front page of the Sunday World. And then there's more detail about the nature the, the, of the investigation. Guardy believed word of mouth within GA and amateur golfing circles ultimately led to some of those who allege they gave the player money to contact Gardy On one occasion, it's alleged the player was spotted golfing at a time when he told a beneficiary he'd be abroad receiving uh, treatment. And it's alleged he was confronted on the golf course about the outstanding debt. And uh, Sunday Independent front page, they... Um, <coughs> Uh, lead with uh, Dennis O'Brien as being uh, one of those uh, people that the uh, man in question reached out to for financial help. Um, Mr O'Brien understood to be one of a number of people who were allegedly tapped for money, uh, writes Maeve Sheehan, by the leading sportsman in recent years, claiming it was either a loan or to pay for his cancer treatment. Uh, Mr O'Brien provided uh, funds according to a source who declined to put a figure on the amount, However, the sums involved believed to run into tens of thousands. And May she in similar theme to the Sunday World, there are growing concerns for the health of the sportsman <coughs> who has been hospitalised since the news of the uh, Garda investigation broke last week. And again a relative uh, told the Sunday Independent he's been receiving medical care as a result of the strain and uh, that's where that Story is, and uh, I suspect it'll be one we'll be uh, reading about for some time. Uh, very happy to say, Keane Tracy of the Irish Independent here in studio, as is Brendan O'Brien of the Irish Examiner. You're both very welcome, fellas. Thanks for coming in. Cheers, Joe. Thank you. Uh, we were making the point on the uh, sports sections. There's not, you know, akin to last week after France Ireland, there's not a standout, we must start with X or Y
0: story really across the pages today. Yeah, like it's usually when you're coming in here, Joe, there is one big story that you want to get stuck into. Even, you know, in terms of the rugby, it's obviously a break week in the Six Nations, and I think that's probably reflected across the coverage. Italy is obviously coming next week, it's always a little bit of a harder sell, but there is still plenty of, I think, bits and pieces w- without there being a kind of a standout story, I think, Bryn.
1: Mm, Yeah, yeah, a nice diverse range of, of pieces. Um, women's Chinese football, GA presidency, a bit of rugger. So, yeah, there's a bit of something for everybody but like Ian says there wouldn't be a, a piece you'd be, be WhatsApp on your friends saying you've you got to read this this morning this is head and shoulders
2: Charlotte Burns on the front pages I suppose as good a place to start as any so he is the new GAA president at the second time of running uh, he uh, in Colm keyes 's piece for instance on the front page of the Sunday <coughs> Independent he has said that in the event of a border poll and Irish unity it would be incumbent on all civic organisations to take a position on it. I don't know if that's necessarily true actually. I mm-hmm. don't know if the scouts or Neighbourhood Watch need to <laughs> take a position but certainly the GEA given their history you suspect will take a position. Uh, he says in the in the climate where there would be a border poll called it would be incumbent on all civic organisations to take a position and it wouldn't be a shock therapy to anybody to hear that the GEA which have always ignored partition very honourably would want to see a united Ireland. That is my dream And it's not a subversive dream to have. It's a very valid perspective, particularly in the context of Brexit. But we would have to do it very responsibly. And to be fair to him, I think when you listen to him speak about his uh, respect for uh, all persuasions up north, I think he means that very sincerely. Uh, He talked about a few other issues that didn't make headlines in the same way. Uh, For instance, uh, something like Casement Park. That project, uh, the costs have soared, as they have with building everywhere, I think. So it's gone up from 80 million to maybe 120, 140 sterling. He says the GA still should uh, uh, stick to the 15 million pound uh, help they had put in place, a limit. He said it's more than enough. If we spend on that, it means we have to take away from elsewhere. And then there's a couple of nice feature pieces. The one in the mail was uh, quite good and gave a good sense of his background mm. and he was going to very much miss being a principal, for instance.
1: Yeah, I have to say I'm I'm quite disturbed to see a man of Jarrett's vintage has become GA president. He's the first GA president I remember from the field of play. Uh, he's less than ten years older than me, so that's kind of a splash of cold water in a Sunday morning when you when you see that happening. And it, it kind of strikes that he's the right guy in the right place. When you mention the you know Brexit polls and stuff like that, uh, or border polls that that will be coming up, and and the manner in which he has been so. Um he has embraced the other side of the argument from um the unionist perspective and he was on the GA Social a few weeks ago, he talked very, very well about it. And that piece that you mentioned from Philip Lannigan in, in um in the mail on Sunday does give a very good synopsis of the person. You know, he's gone over to the to watch Arsenal at the Emirates, um the pioneer pin he was he was wearing, he talks about unionism and inclusion. Um, and even, even something like his son, Jarlath Ogue, who's on the Armagh senior panel. So this is a guy who was captain of Armagh himself in 99, which isn't a million years ago. It is the last century, I suppose. But the fact his son is part of a, uh, a county panel at the moment gives him that very um, concrete connection to the inter-county game, which is going to be very, very important. So it strikes me he's the right man at the right time. Um, I saw a clip of him um, addressing his Silver Bridge um, club colleagues in Level 5 of Croke Park on Friday night, which was fantastic. The guy is a really good speaker. He's very, very eloquent. He's been an analyst throughout um, a lot of his post-playing career. And Mick Foley in the Sunday Times makes the point that he might be the most eloquent, eloquent potentially progressive president since Sean Kelly. Good on detail and big-picture stuff with the ambition to still make it count. But someone still considered an outsider among the inner circle of power brokers. And that's interesting as well, because he's never been a county board chairman or a provincial council chairman either, which is very, very unusual. Mm. So when you consider that the president at the moment is Larry McCarthy, he was the first overseas president. Now we've got a guy who's 55 years of age, who hasn't come up through to the traditional power structure, structures of the GA. So that's a really couple of interesting sides to him as well. And the fact of it as well, that the current director general is Tom Ryan, who is very much a guy who doesn't want to be in the media all the time. That's another interesting side of it. So now you have this guy who is well able to talk, and which, I seem to mention this every time I mention the GAA in here, but you have the twin pillars at the top of the GAA, you have the DG, and you have the, the president who comes in for a three-year term as well. So I think in terms of balancing out those two guys at the top of the organisation, that that sounds to me like it might be a good fit. So yeah. Very interesting as well, because it wasn't um, a brilliantly headline-inducing Congress in itself. You know, Mick Foley has the piece about the other key motions, you know, Kerry to be admitted to the Munster senior hurling if they win the Joe McDonough, stuff about the under, underage grades, you know, all penalties doubled for team officials guilty of infractions at juvenile games. So, you know, meat and, and potato stuff, yeah. the jarlett burns is the stuff that stands out really.
2: Yeah, it's Philip Blanagan's profile piece in the Mail, and he agrees with your point, He says Burns offers a modern, dynamic, articulate face to the GEA, qualities that no doubt fed into his emphatic victory. And uh, the other point Burns has been making quite vociferously over the last couple of days is about amateurism and really upholding and strengthening the Mm GEA's amateur status. He said every county I went into, they're telling me they're overwhelmed by the amount of money that they're having to spend. Uh, He says this is giving a tremendous dividend because if you look at the high performance culture that exists within our division one and two teams, you don't want to be seen as a Luddite to be pulling that back. But you have to remember, we do have an amateur status. And if you look at the amateur status that exists in American universities, they are very robust in protecting that. I don't think we're protecting it strongly enough with regard to the number of times we are asking our players to train their cardiovascular load and the number of uh, backroom teams the size of panels and he wants to work with the gpa to try and find a proper balance best of luck best of luck jared there's no going back i think i don't know how you would uh, implement that and what's more and it's always the debate with any ga president who comes in talking of grand visions
0: you're there for three years and what power do you really have beyond soft power Yeah, like the headline jumped out to me. I'm going to be clear on this. I do not want a legacy, but I'm kind of thinking, do you not, as president of GA, do you not want to create some sort of legacy? Um, It's a strange selling point. Like, exactly, yeah. (laughs) I don't want a legacy. Yeah, like, you know, I just want to come in and be forgotten about. I thought that was um, a bit strange, but um, it's a good piece. Like Brent says, it gives a flavour of the man. Clearly, family is really, really important to him. Um, This line jumped out. Never afraid to think big. This is someone who looked at booking you 2 for the GA's 125 Uh, anniversary celebrations at Crow Park Um, so yeah family definitely comes across as being Mm -hmm. real important to him Um, I think he was wearing his dad's tie it said um, and a a, a pin as well from a a club man so yeah I have to say, when I saw when I knew I was coming in here and I saw the GA Congress was on, my heart sank a little bit. I have to say, <laughs> because if there's one thing that just does not float my boat, it's GA Congress. So thankfully, there was uh, something to get stuck into other than <laughs> that. It doesn't float the boat of the GA Congress <laughs> correspondent. Yes. No,
1: no, no. I, I sat through a few of them in my time, and uh, you know there there's been some very, very interesting ones. You know, there is. Culturally changing events that happen through Congress, but maybe this isn't one of them, but just on Burns as well I mean The right guy at the right time in terms of you know the border poll and all that discussion as well And it'd be interesting to see. I mean he talks about not wanting a legacy But there are some big things coming up on his watch and how he how he how he um, gets through them You mentioned the amateur status and I'm always reminded of Eddie O'Sullivan's thing about you can't unring a bell You know so that is just a multi-tentacled problem that nobody's going to... And, you know, three years, he's, he's not going to be there long enough to do it. But that will that, will emph- that re-emphasise on his watch. And the other thing then is, uh, you know, the integration of the three organisations with the La- Ladies Gaelic Football and the Camogie Association. And it's interesting, his background, you know, he he's coming from a club which seems to be very well integrated in that sense and maybe one that kind of doesn't see the fuss about it in terms of, well, we can make it work. But we all know from experiences and and anecdotes around the country that there is a lot of tectonic plates jarring up against each other and how you make that work. That's another multi-tentacle problem that is going to be very much in the focus on his watch. Um, And he's talking about here if we're going to divide our assets in three, which is what we would be doing with integration, I think it would need to come with a massive injection of facilities for us. So next question where does the money for all this come from
2: it's big on facilities yeah yeah
1: but i mean we see this i see this where i live i mean as well the ga club has had to spread out beyond its 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 boundaries to you know public pitches and we we see that everywhere yeah. soccer clubs are the same rugby clubs are the same uh, and at a time as well i mean facilities it's not just about we'll buy that field you know there's drainage there's upkeep and everything there's, you know the cost of living is is soaring all the time as well, so there's a lot of things on his watch, so maybe he won't have a, a legacy, but there's, there's still plenty to get stuck into. Uh,
2: another uh, GA story of sorts, page 18, Sunday Times. this is Michael Foley, and he notes uh, Dr. Kieran Murray, who's a, a consultant doctor, and uh, Dr. Colin Murphy, the core curling team doctor. Uh, around the time that the Glenn-Crogues controversy was dominating the airwaves, they had uh, put into the public their master's dissertation about drinking and gambling trends amongst uh, male and female intercounty uh, players. And the top-line results were shocking, says Mick Foley. So, they... Um, Based on figures derived from a survey undertaken by the GPA, their research suggests that inter-county players six times more likely to become problem gamblers. About 0.8% of gamblers in the general population would be classed as problem gamblers. But from a sample of just under 700 inter-county players, that was 4.8%. So in the general population, 0.8% of us are problem gamblers. Within GA inter-county players, 4.8%. And it concludes as well that 79% of inter players are gambling and again, general population, 65%. I don't find that too surprising, I must say. 75% inter-county players, 65% in the general population. I would think lots of the general population have zero interest in sport, whereas obviously inter players generally would have an interest in sport and be more likely uh, to gamble. Uh, I was surprised, said uh, Murray, at the high percentage of problem gambling and that all problem gamblers were male. All prolonged gamblers were male. And he goes on to say that uh, a few academic papers have have dedicated uh, themselves to the issue of gambling amongst elite sports people. But there are soft signs of compulsive gamblers uh, that align close to the personality types that excel at elite sports. High energy levels, expectations of winning, uh, intensely competitive, uh, relentless optimism. Uh, Plus the point as well is made that often these GA players are bored silly Mm. if they can't socialise and can't have a drink and can't uh, go out and do all the normal things that you might do. So uh, if you're if you're looking for a bit of a buzz or a bit of high, then maybe gambling is one of the outlets. And of course, it's so uh, accessible. So um, shocking, maybe not surprising. Same time or whatever that phrase is, I always misuse it.
0: It's it's the type of thing though you kind of hear about in Premier League or not Premier League, but footballers in England. Yeah. You know, young young kids going over, or not young kids, but young lads going over and just nothing to do in digs or whatever, and they just turn to to gambling. So um, to see it so stark, I guess, and you know, the, the, you kind of touch it into there, Joe. They're making a the point that because they don't drink or socialise, they need that outlet, they need that high. Um, but yeah, I was I was a bit surprised that it it is it does seem to be so um, so rampant.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of all those biographies of Irish footballers going over and I think Niall Quinn's one was very good about was it him yeah. who was throwing pennies up against the wall seated stick you know after training um you know you hear about it all the time uh snooker halls were a great time killer for for footballers down the years but we don't have snooker halls anymore um or very few of them so it isn't surprising um and Justin Campbell, the addiction counselor and former Gulliver, did put it very well there. And there's some good kind of personal stories about um, the Tyrone footballer um, Niall McNamee, O'Shea McConville, and uh, you know just how they were Richie Power mm. from very small acorns. This this huge problem did arise. I you know it's interesting as well. I I hadn't known too much about the detail of the gambling regulation bill that Mick Foley mentions here as well. Like um, And it has been stuck in the stalls, as he says, for a number of years. So gambling advertising between 5.30 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. to be stopped, to stop credit card gambling, I didn't know that, Mm. Uh, and build a social impact fund for research and treatment financed by a levy on the the industry's turnover. And they all seem like very obvious things to do, you know, to, to start addressing the problem. I didn't know either that betting firms had finally stopped taking bets in underage matches in 2016. So it's quite clear that there are things that need to be done and I think the point is made in the article as well that the point about GA players not being able to gamble on matches they're involved in was only brought in in you know, 2017, 2018 or whatever, which might account for the fact that 19% of the players didn't know that that was uh, against the rules. But yeah, it's um, I, I agree with you Joe, I think they're shocking but not surprising statistics. And I can fully see how players who are, you know, we hear about the the amount of hours that GA players put into their non-profession, I suppose, mm. that they are deprived of, and they're depriving themselves of social lives, of holidays, of all the other things that we can just do when we open up a laptop or or, or go, go outside the door. So, um, yeah, um, just hopefully this regulation bill just does get over the line sooner rather than later.
2: Uh, one of the more uh, common threads across the papers is the situation at Manchester United. So it would seem that the Qatari bid is the favourite to come out on top, although as I mentioned during the headlines, the Glazers seem to be suggesting that it's six billion over sticking around. So Sunday Independence, Sam Wallace is is writing there. The mail on p- page seventy-two, uh, It's a Rob Draper report, tries to get into the nuts and bolts of where the money exactly is coming from. And I suppose it's complicated, but the short version is that there are various silos set up across uh, Qatari industry. And that will allow this to get over the line, ultimately, because there is enough separation between the PSG situation and the Manchester United situation and uh, various other investments that they've uh, made. And then uh, Alison Rudd in the Sunday Times is wondering, will Manchester United fans stand up in any great capacity, which is an interesting question. So, I mean, even just to read about uh, Sheikh Jazim bin Halmad, which is what the um, mail goes into, it's, they say, so little is known about Sheikh Jazim bin Ahmad. Al the Qatari bank manager who lodged a four billion bid to buy Manchester United on Friday, that even his spokespeople working for him don't know his exact age. They weren't sure was it 40 or 41. And I guess without getting into too much of the nitty gritty here, what just jumps out is how interconnected mm. everything at this uh, rarefied international level is. So to get to know Sheikh Jazimban Hamad, who's about 40 or 41, you've got to look at his father. So the piece says, plenty is known about his father, a colourful and sometimes controversial figure who owns swathes of property in some of London's richest districts. And he gave 2.6 million in cash, 2.6 million in cash. Think about that for a second. He gave 2.6 million in cash to King Charles across several face-to-face meetings, Uh, one in 2015 at Clarence House. And uh, that money, should be stressed, did end up in the uh, charity that... Prince Charles or King Charles now uh, runs. But uh, this guy's father was nicknamed the man who bought London. He was formerly head of Qatar's Sovereign Wealth Fund, which, you know, I mean, the the property portfolio. Uh, This Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund owns the Shard. It owns Harrods. It owns the Intercontinental uh, London Park Lane Hotel. It owns the London 2012 Olympic Village, just owns the whole village. And by 2013, it was estimated that QIA, the Qatari investment uh, wealth fund, owned or had invested 20 billion in uh, the UK alone. So it seems that uh, the son, Sheikh Shazam, one of 15 children that the father had with his two wives, born in 1982, apparently a big Manchester United fan, and, uh, you know, English educated. Uh, Graduated from the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst by 2005. And then at 23, he's appointed to chairman of the QIB, which is one of Qatar's leading banks. And from there, um, uh, things have flourished. So any question mark over whether or not this bit will go through because of the PSG link? I mean, the, the piece makes the point. If, uh, you know, Bayern Munich, for instance, wanted to complain, their first port of call would be the European Clubs Association, which is chaired by Nasser al-Khalifa, president of PSG, chairman of the Qatar Sports Investment and uh, a member of that same bank and UEFA's executive committee. And also UEFA has set a precedent in Leipzig and Red Bull uh, Salzburg as well. Uh, One other point the piece makes, Manchester City Council and the UK government are going to push for a regeneration project similar to the one that Abu Dhabi have carried out at Manchester City's ground. So that's the the mail piece. And it's got, helpfully, it's got a graphic with the various photos of all the different people and their various uh, connections. So there's enough separation, but also not a huge amount of separation uh, either is, is the point this piece makes. And the headline is, make no mistake, this is Qatari state bid in all but name. So this is a Qatari state bid in all but name. I suspect every listener will be saying tell me something
1: i don't know <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, there's a great line um the first thing to say about this is when you when you read all this i kind of not avoided reading all about this but it was kind of depressing me during the week and i just kind of said ah oh, you know all this stuff again but um sitting down to do the paper review today forces you into it you look at it and the overriding factor is this is happening you know um we can say ah oh, you know this is terrible this isn't right this is whatever Uh, Alison Rudd, as you said, makes the point about will United fans make a stand over it. Whether they do or not, I don't think they would. Why would it be any different than Newcastle United fans in that sense? This is happening. There's a great quote in Jonathan Northcroft's piece in The Sunday Times. So um, there's a feeling that what happens on the pitch speaks the loudest. During the World Cup, the head of the Asian Confederation was a man called Sheikh Salman al-Khalifa, a member of Bahrain's ruling family, who rebuked those criticising Qatar's hosting of the event with an Arab proverb, the dogs bark but the caravan moves on. And that's it in a nutshell. That is like six, eight pages of analysis into this whole issue in one Arab proverb. This is happening, lads. And you put it very well, Joe, all the investment in London, in property, in businesses, this is going on for years and years and years. This is embedded and we're just noticing it now because it's in the sports pages and this is something that now affects us. I mean, how embedded this all is, I mean, buying up places like Harrods, there's a piece in the, the male's um, portrayal of it of Jasin's personal fortune. He's also known, one thing we do know about him is his career is in graduating from the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst in yeah. 2005. These guys are as high up in the British food chain as is possible. You mentioned then um, the the influence that um, people have in like European football, whether it's in the big clubs or the big um, power bodies or whatever. This is going to happen, and then the bit at the end of the 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 mail um, piece about the UK government will push for a regeneration project. I mean, what's the line? It says the political momentum behind such a bid will be ir- irresistible.
2: Actually, and, and Sam Wallace in the Sunday Independent looks at the politics more than the individuals and he makes the point in the current energy crisis uh, Qatari liquefied natural gas has never been more important to the British government. There you go. Any sense that the British government might intervene here and disrupt this is null and void. And he argues as well that this is different to Newcastle that with Saudi it really is about sports washing and distracting from uh, various aspects of that state. He says with Qatar it's less about sports washing he says it's more about having soft power in the world because mm. Qatar is a vulnerable, uh, tiny, flat Gulf Peninsula trapped between the two great bullies of the region, Saudi and Iran. Uh, it's the size of Yorkshire, one of the wealthiest nations in the world, though, and it's determined to make itself politically uh, unviable to blockade or indeed invade. So it's, it's mm-hmm. about becoming a, a player on the world stage as opposed to please uh, distract from our LGBTQ yeah. plus policy because nobody had really heard of Qatar in any great depth before the World Cup so it's, it's about actually just gaining um, I was going to say no, notoriety, uh, <laughs> notoriety they don't want that but they want to, to gain in reputation as opposed to in Sam Wallace's view uh, distract the way Saudi are using Newcastle maybe it's two sides of the one coin
0: yeah, like I'm kind of torn in this. In terms of uh, from a fan's point of view, like I get the point. The, the headline in Alison piece United fans could make a stand over to bid, but will they? But like, it's just it's easier said than done. Then, like, if you're from Manchester, if you're from Newcastle, and that's what you've grown up with, you know, to just walk away and say I'm not going to support this anymore. You know, we talked about the the gambling and not having an outlet. Like that's a lot of people's yeah. outlet at the weekend is to go to a game, and you know it, it, that. It's, it's hard to know like wh- where which side you fall on it because like I said um, like if you come, think about it like if, if the Qataris came in and bought over like the provinces let's say in rugby you know and if you if all you knew like growing up was going to Leinster or Munster or Connacht at the weekend would you suddenly go no I'm not supporting that I'm not going to that so um, I think it's easier said than done than say United fans could make a stand and it might be might have been in Allison Rudd's piece they're kind of comparing it to the Super League when the fans all got together mm. And, you know, the Super League stopped for now, but there's definitely a sense that that's going to mm. knock away either. So um, I just think it's, yeah, it's, it's easier said than done to expect fans just to go, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to support the club. Um, protest maybe might be doable. support the club. I, like I, Manchester United fans are practised in the art of hating the
2: owners and loving the club. I was, but but I, look,
1: look, look at it, sorry, King, look at it as well. What's this Qatari bid promising to do? Mm. We will absolutely, we'll tear Old Trafford down and we'll give you a new one, and Old Trafford is a kip. Yeah. The last time I was there was 10 years ago, and it, it was showing its age already. Um, clear, clear, look, the,
2: clear the debt. Clear the debt. Yeah.
1: All this money, and clear the debt after the Glazers, who have taken out the, the figures there in the paper, multi-millions of, of pounds from the club. So why, if you're, on your point, Keen, if you're a fan, uh, I want the Glazers out, mm-hmm. just like Newcastle wanted Mike Ashley out. And these guys are coming in, and they're going to rebuild the, the, the training ground which is more multi-million euros. Yeah. And, and the interesting point in all this is, it's made, it's made in one of the pieces, I can't remember which, does it come to the point where, forget about a Leicester City winning the league, how will a Liverpool win the league? And and that's another point that I think it's in Jonathan Northcroft's piece, one of the football experts is saying that um, the danger here is that the Premier League could get nearly too big for its boots, and that if you have a handful of state-backed clubs that are operating at a level way beyond anywhere else, Suddenly, like the say the the u s investors who were who are looking to come in, they could look at a Premier League Club and go, "Well, why would I get involved with Liverpool or anybody else when these guys have all this mm. uh state state backed money it's totally out of our reach and and just a sense of how quickly this is all escalated is the start of Jonathan Norcroft's piece in The Sunday Times, where he's talking about the Thai owners who took over um Leicester City um who promised to invest no more than sixty million pounds a season. Two years later, Leicester were Premier League champions after spending only 25 million a season and 12 months ahead of schedule. That sounds like something out of the 50s when the local glue factory owner took over some team in, in Yorkshire and got them up to the top tier. Yeah. You know, two points a win. It's, it's astonishing. Like, what year was Leicester City? Was that? 16. 20, that's seven years ago. And that's, that's how it shot through the roof in no time at all.
2: Fans would protest over that kind of spending now. <laughs> like,
1: Jack Walker at Blackburn Lake. You know, he seems like he's from a different Your po- 400 years ago. You
2: know, it's an interesting point that actually these petro-states may put off the, I, I don't know, the, the, the hedge fund types. Uh, Poor old multi-millionaires. Know, the quaint uh, hedge funds. Because I was going to wonder, you know, this has been talked about as well in the papers as a failure of regulation. But you wonder to what extent it's slightly willful because this has elevated the league into just the Super League mm. you know I'm yeah, sure in Spain, Spain yeah. in Spain maybe they're saying Laz, what, why 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 was it Man City and not Valencia why Newcastle and not Levante how we missed out on all why this why not Real, Real Madrid yeah. yeah because it's it's because of this money you have Erling Haaland coming to the league and if Mbappe is to leave he may well end up in the Premier League because of the, mm. the money so you do wonder if it's, it's a lack of regulation but also willful lack of regulation yeah. because it's been terrible, quote unquote, but it's also been wonderful for mm. the league.
0: Yeah. Just just on the, the protest, so like I was over in Old Trafford. um a couple you a United fan? Uh, yeah. Um, so you I have was, to think about that. Yeah, I am. <laughs> um, I was over there a couple of months ago. I hadn't been in a long, long time. You're right, it is it is fairly run down, but there was a march before the game like that we just happened to come across as we were walking in an anti-Glazer's march, but like all those people were still going into the game. Do you know what I mean? So like you can have your protest, you can have your thing, but those people who I saw weren't going, I'm not going in to, to watch this game. So that's what I feel like is probably going to happen with this as well. You can protest and all that, but ultimately, I would say 95% of people are still going to go and they're going to watch Man United at the no, no more than, than Newcastle will. So to say you, you, you United fans make a stand is fair enough, but like how far do you go with no, that d- stand? D- d- well, we've true. already
1: had one breakaway club from, from Man U as well, yeah. back when the Glazers took over. So, you know.
2: I guess you know. maybe the interesting thing will be with Newcastle. It would seem, and I'm basing this in the online world, which can be manipulated, but it would seem a huge percentage of Newcastle fans almost defend the the Saudi regime online. It will be interesting. The Qatari, uh, I was going to say state, let's call it the uh, bid, as Sam Wallace says, they are looking at the 470 million Manchester United fans around the world. If you suddenly buy their... uh, Affections—that's quite a lot of people. And the
0: thing is, like you, um, you touched on it there about the the Glazers, whoever's coming in after the Glazers are going to be hailed as you know, it, it exact same as Mike Ashley in Newcastle. So, true. and that's exactly what they want, isn't it? Like that's their sport washing in, in action, really. Yeah,
1: there's nothing more one-eyed than a football fan on social media.
0: No, it's true. <laughs> so you know, any fan, to be fair, although it, Sam Wallace's piece
2: again points out, like at Manchester City's Etihad Stadium, there is a banner in the centre tier of the stand, which faces the television cameras and it says thanks on behalf of the city to uh, Sheikh Mansour. Mm. You know, so it's a fairly uh, prominent location. There you go. Uh, those bids were lodged on Friday. I don't know how quickly things will um, proceed from now, but it seems the Qataris are out in front. You, uh, Brendan, picked out a piece on Willie Mullins. Yeah. Page 60, Mail on Sunday. We are three weeks out from Cheltenham Yeah.
1: Now? Um, Yeah, it's an interesting piece um, and it's written by Philip Quinn who writes a lot of football as well and Philip goes over to Cheltenham um, so he's well versed in both camps and and the good thing about having somebody like Philip write this is he puts in a lot of football references and Willie Mullins himself is a football fan so if like me you're not into the the nuts and bolts of racing I I covered Cheltenham for nine years and sport is still a bit of a mystery to me I never fully talking into my heart, but I am interested in it. Uh, so it's a nice piece if you're not, somebody's going to be watching the 320 from, you know, Punchestown or whatever.
2: And as an aside, would you recommend Cheltenham to somebody like you who can vaguely I appreciate it, but yeah. is not sure if it's really for them?
1: Ah, yeah. Like if you're a sports punter and you have that adrenaline buzz that you want to do, I mean, it is. it is. I mean, the whole town is taken over from it. Um, the, f- the week of the of the festival is... It's no different to being in Turles for a monster final or you know, going to the Aviva and the, the crowds around it. If you're there with a group of friends or family... Um, is it family friendly?
2: Mm, I, I
1: have it as a booze fest in my head. It, is, it can be. like I, I'm reminded of, of especially the Gold Cup days on a Friday. And you see it as the week goes on. And the Tuesday maybe you can get around a little bit. It's okay. But by the Friday you're literally wedged. So you're trying to get from the, the press area to the, the ring... Um, for the post race comments, not and it's literally like you know, Grand Central Station on Christmas Eve. Yeah, so
2: one of uh, the points people made about the Dublin Racing Festival recently almost is that like it was Cheltenham Light, it wasn't yeah. overcrowded, you could go to the toilet yeah. with a bit more ease. The queue at the bar wasn't as big,
1: yeah, and Punchestown would be the same as well, if if, if from an Irish context as well. So, would it be fine? Fam- I've never thought of it in those terms, like. Uh,
0: is it a sporting bucket list kind of thing that, you know, Cheltenham Gold Cup Friday? Because I am I, I actually find horse racing really interesting, but it's only in the last few years because I suppose I'm hanging out with people who are into it and mm. I take a passing interest. And certainly when Cheltenham comes around, I do just find like the psychology behind it and, you know, the jockeys and the horses and stuff really interesting, but... I don't bet, like I don't. I'm not like heavily interested in it, mm-hmm. but I have always wondered what would it be like to go to Cheltenham, you know, with a group of mates. Like, so, I,
1: with a group of mates, be brilliant, yeah. you know. It, it really would, like, you know, um, go out, hang out, mm. have the crack, whether you're, whether you're betting or not. I don't think is is a huge part of it. If you're not into the horse racing, mm. you know what I mean. So, but the atmosphere is fantastic. That cliched first roar on on the Tuesday when you know when it starts is is fantastic. And like I say, it's very well organised. Um what you'll notice with a lot of the um the uh the race courses in the UK, like the golf courses, they're well connected in terms of transport. Do you know what I mean? You can get the buses, you can get there's trains beside them. Um yeah. it's very well organised. Now it's it's like trying to get out of Cardiff on Six Nations game at the best time. But yeah, I mean, if you're into sports, yeah. there'd be no reason not to, or no, the Breeders' Cup so. or something
2: I like so. that. You know? I, distra- I, I distracted you there. So you're okay. I mean, what Jim said, the Mullins piece as much as anything is just him and he horses, him and Gordon Elliot. Well, and that,
1: that's what caught my eye on it because, you know, as, as somebody who throws the odd eye over it, um, like people will say when uh, Cheltenham happens and we have the, the Presbury Cup, you know, Ireland versus the UK, this gimmicky, made up thing of Irish runners versus English runners, which we never had a hope of competing in down the years. And
2: yeah, don't call the, it gimmicky now that we start winning. Well, I this guess.
1: is the thing. It wasn't a thing until there was a chance of us winning it. <laughs> and they say us, and that's another thing entirely. But anyway, yeah. um, but really it's it's a handful of Irish trainers who are winning all the big pots. And if you look at any of the big um, meets in Ireland as well, I mean, the amount of runners that are Willie Mullins or Gordon Elliott, or a Henry de Bromhead have is astonishing. And we've seen in recent years some of the smaller trainers in Ireland just pack it in. They just It's economically not viable for them. So what caught my eye on it was um, Mullins is talking a little bit about the size of a stable and he's actually saying, look, look he's probably said this a hundred times and I haven't read the piece, but um, he mentions, I don't particularly want the yard this big, but when the opposition grows you have to stay with them and that's how it's grown. So that's interesting as well, like yeah. you know, you, you I remember talking to Gerald Lyons, the trainer, a few years ago for a piece I did and um he was saying I asked him, you know, when you get a little bit of success is it inevitable that you have to keep going and keep going. He said, No, no, I'm quite happy with where I am at the moment, which mm-hmm. which is unusual. Um you know, same as in the Premier League. Things inevitably get bigger. Success breeds success. And just a couple of nice little anecdotes and about Mullins himself, how he doesn't enjoy the run up to, to Cheltenham, um, you know how they kind of they keep to themselves. It's all about the next day's racing. It's just a nice insight into the man who, for guys like us who will throw a, an eye at the, the TV screen during Cheltenham, will see what it is that makes him take in the background. So look, some of the numbers. I mean, there's some really good good um, numbers in it. So where does it say uh, that the battalion of 60 runners? will be bound for Cheltenham, 60, Six zero. Yeah. all of which will, will have a chance. And he's got a really great quote in here. So Mullins says something about, as they say in racing, it's 90% disappointing. And Philip says, it's incredible to consider that if that high a percentage of his 60 runners at Cheltenham bombed out, Mullins would still end up with six winners. Like, that is ridiculous. If
2: I gave you 60 horses and you are train them for a year... <laughs> <laughs> chances.
1: I might get one, maybe. Yeah.
2: He's had 88 Cheltenham winners. He said, I can't, up to he said, I can't believe it. It's gobsmacking. But
0: well, I wonder, though, does he get appreciated outside of, because, you know, it's a fairly niche kind of, yeah. does he get appreciated in terms of, like, Irish sporting, you know, greats, like what he's done has been it is. phenomenal. I, and, like, the operation to bring 60 horses. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, um, I was on a flight to America, to Chicago, going to one of the rugby matches and I was sitting next to Gavin Cromwell's uncle, I think it was, mm. and they were taking a horse over to, visit um, it the Derby? Braiders' Cup. Or the yeah, Derby, yeah, one of, them. one of them. And like, I had never actually kind of thought like the operation involved in whatever about bringing a horse over to Cheltenham, but over to America from, from Ireland. Like, it's just phenomenal what must go on behind the scenes. I would actually love to go to one of the yards and just kind of yeah. see how they do it, you know, they seem to be quite open in terms they are, of their coverage. Michael Verney in our place in the Indo had a video a couple of weeks ago with, you know, just behind the scenes and it's yeah. just really interesting to see, you know, how it works because no different to, like we don't get, kind of get that access in rugby no. or whatever, you know, you, you you kind of get 10 minutes of training at the start to see lads stretching but yeah. to see what they do behind the scenes is is really interesting and a guy like Willie Mullins, like I said, is probably still a bit underappreciated, I would say, in the way I
1: would say he is because of what I say about horse racing. I know so many of my friends would be massive sports heads mm-hmm. and a handful would be horse racing yeah. enthusiasts. Same.
2: It seems to... And the gambling is the main attraction, I Yeah, I, I
1: maybe for a lot of them. And, and it seems to exist as an adjunct to, to sport. It's like, if sports is the toy department, this is the... um the, the niche toy market, do you know what I mean? It's kind of always over there in, in, a, in a separate corner, but you're right about the access. And like covering Cheltenham, I, you know, one of the things, the main thing about covering it was, the access you get, you would get a guy jumping off a horse, having won one of the, the big races, and within two, two minutes, microphones stuck under his nose and the adrenaline is pouring out. It's fantastic.
2: No, that is true, and to be fair, it remains one of the very few sports and you would know this from rugby, for instance, it remains one of the few sports where you can directly drop a text message to any of the very, very elite participants, the top jockeys, the top trainers. And in the main, they wouldn't say, why are you texting (laughs) me directly? Why haven't you gone through the PR person to get to me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, That'd be the dream. Yeah, the dream. It, It
1: is, because even like the League of Ireland would have been the other one in that manner for a number of years and you talk to lads
0: covering the League of Ireland now it's tightening up, totally changed mm-hmm. you know so so drop, so. Drop, dropping Johnny to sex in a text well what's the story are, yeah. you, are you fit for Italy can you imagine <laughs> can you imagine it? Yeah. So that's why yeah, I think it's really interesting that they yeah. do get great access and it, it sells the sport really well like, doesn't it it does yeah yeah
2: mm-hmm. yeah. okay so that's uh, Willie Mullins ahead of uh, Cheltenham uh, there is like it's just an extraordinary piece I don't really know as a talking point or a discussion point is there much we can say on it, but just to recommend it as Mm. a great read and it's called Dennehy, pages 16 and 17, Sunday Independent. And it is utterly horrific. And if you are somebody of a sensitive disposition who may find uh, various issues of abuse triggering, then I would say maybe uh, skip through for two, three, four minutes on the podcast if you're listening there or uh, turn off the radio. I would not know who... Oksana Masters is. So uh, Oksana Masters is a Paralympian gold medalist in several different pursuits. She's had all manner of injuries and has, you know, initially it was rowing and then injuries scuppered that. And so she came back and she became a winter Paralympian and took up cross-country skiing and went to Sochi. And then 2016 Paralympics in Rio, she competed in hand cycling and then road racing and ultimately came through and, and won gold medals. But I suppose it's it's just uh, so shocking, her story. And, and Denny paints it beautifully here. And she's written a memoir, I guess, is the point, the hard parts, which I suspect. And he says so himself. It's a riveting 335 page trip through one of the most fascinating stories in world sport. And that's no exaggeration. So to give you a brief synopsis, she's 33 years of age now. So that means she was born in 1989, in June 1989. Uh, This was in Ukraine. This was three years after the nuclear power plant disaster at Chernobyl. And she was born a couple of hundred miles away. You know, this is the kind of thing to remember here. She was several hundred miles away from Chernobyl. And yet the radiation poisoning was such that it caused multiple birth defects. So she was born and just, The heartbreak here. She was born with six toes on each foot, five webbed fingers, no thumbs. Both of her legs were missing tibias, which would, in time, lead them to become non-functional. You'd think that's bad enough. It gets a whole lot worse. Until the age of seven, she lived in orphanages, three in total. The last one was the worst. So this is until she was seven years old. There, Oksana was beaten, raped, raped, her home a hell from which she couldn't escape. She learned at an early age not to cry because that brought further beatings and so she suppressed her sadness. Her nights lived in quiet terror wishing for a saviour to walk through the door and adopt her. But as the children around her got picked, extracted, saved, she was always left there unwanted. Her disabilities and the level of care required meaning Oksana was overlooked again and again. There's then a description of a piece where her and her best friend Lainey because they're starving at nighttime. they sneak out to look for food, they get caught, and Oksana is, is pushed by Lainey as the um, whoever's in charge of this hellhole of an orphanage comes out. Uh, Lainey pushed her away so she'd be hidden from view, but Lainey got caught herself. As a young girl. She was dragged from the room. She was viciously beaten and left for dead on the floor. The orphanage told anyone who asked that she had died of an illness. Oksana, though, says she saw what happens. Uh, she says, honestly, I've yet to come to terms with it 20 years on. What happened to her is because of me, the guilt will never go away. I don't want her to be forgotten. Uh, eventually, she's adopted by a professor in America, gay masters, uh, who's was university professor in New York, single woman, couldn't have children. Eventually, uh, the cost was prohibitive of adopting in the US. And so she saw a video of Xana adopted her. That's not the end of her troubles, though. So she, she's adopted in 97 at the, age of, <coughs> at the age of eight. And then the the issues at birth come to the fore. So her left leg was amputated when she was nine. The right leg when she was 14. That was an especially traumatic experience because she went into the procedure believing it would occur below the knee. But she woke up to find it was above the knee. Uh, for years, she had phantom itches and pains. She used to reach down and scratch her leg and then find it wasn't there. And then she's a teenager trying to deal with just the hell that was her life. And sport is her saviour. And she says uh, to have your legs amputated, having your memories come back that you're um, you've suppressed for so long uh, that you can't control those memories in your head. It gave me a healthy outlet. And she goes on to do amazing things at the games. And she goes back in October 2015 as a I guess, given what she achieved in the Olympics and Paralympics in particular, as a bit of a superstar. And um, at the US Embassy over and and she was brought back to the orphanage, actually. She did a tour of the orphanage, which which brought back, as you can imagine, all kinds of hell. But she was very much local celebrity at that stage. And um, it turns out her family are still there and her brother uh, reaches out to her. And uh, apparently uh, her mother had been forced to give her up because... They said to her, well, you can't afford to look after her so she's going into an orphanage. Sana didn't know what to believe. Uh, she's stayed in touch with her brother. She's currently learning Ukrainian. She's not yet built up the mental capacity to take the giant leap to meet him, um, believing it will likely occur when her sporting career is finished. I'm not sure if her mother's still alive but um, I presume a meeting may well happen. Uh, that's the synopsis of it. It's just jaw-dropping. And like you, you see photos of her here lifting I mean, at a glance you open the page and she is this like extraordinarily beautiful athlete holding uh, the, the flowers aloft and a medal on her in her Paralympic gear and USA and you glance at the photo and it you know the headline is Masters of her Universe because she is um, her second, her surname is Masters, her US surname and you kind of think oh this is the story of, I don't know, a far happier story um, it's just absolutely jaw dropping like I said
0: Inspiring, yeah, you'd have to say. I mean, her, her ability to turn her hand to different sports is remarkable, really. Mm. And you know, Cotal Denny, in fairness, to him like has you know built a really strong reputation for writing really good pieces that are you know, like I've certainly never heard of uh Oksana Masters, um, but the fact he was over in her home in uh, where was it, Illinois, oh, yeah. I mean, like. That's a that's a big undertaking, but, like, it really, really pays off. And, you know, he clearly got her to open up about some really tough things. She's obviously writing it in the memoir, but I would be interested in reading that memoir because, like you said, Joe, the pictures are extremely powerful. Like, in one of them, a man is carrying her, you know, you can see her amputated legs and stuff, and it's just, yeah, remarkably. This was, for me, this was the standout piece um, mm. in the papers. Um, because, like... It, it's it's there's something nice about reading about a story that like when would you ever have kind of yeah. come across that I'm sure it's probably more well known in, in the States um, in Paralympic cir- circles but yeah. uh, Carl Denny does a really really brilliant job I have to say um about getting you know a person to talk about stuff that's not easy and even if you mm-hmm. think yesterday um rory o'connor in our paper had a piece with britney hogan mm-hmm. you know open up about you know her horrific past about abuse and stuff so um you just have to admire people like this who i don't know where they get the courage and the strength from um but i think you know her uh, oxana masters attitude is she doesn't want people to feel sympathy for her She's more written than memoir to try and help people that if anyone was in the same situation, so uh, just hugely hugely admirable and it's the
1: same another link between this and the Brittany Hogan piece as well is is how they they latched onto sport mm. i mean you, you can be very cliched about this kind of thing, and sure. you know you can lay on the treacle and stuff like that, but it's actually very true, and she says it here herself she says um rowing, which she went to first was a lighthouse through the violent storms uh signalling the way to survival like when you just think of those words survival you know sport was beyond going out for a kick about with her friends or going down to the pool it was a means of survival of actually turning all that horror around and, and getting on with her life and she said sport has allowed me to view myself as capable of achieving high goals and appreciating my body for what it can do it taught me how to love myself and love the things that make me different and she uh, mentions a Coco Chanel quote she loves and put Put into her um her high school yearbook photo to be irreplaceable, one must always be different, and eventually she stopped trying to hide what set her apart and choosing to wear her shorts during the sweltering summers and allowing the world to see her prosthetic limbs so just what a role sport played in you know we 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 kind of like even here this morning we've talked about sports washing and gambling problems, and you know there's always that other cliche about you go to the front page for what mankind does badly and the back page for what it is, mankind excels at. But that's so clouded these days because sport is all-encompassing and everything is involved in that. You know, we see all the bad bits of, of the human race in the sports pages and sometimes it can be overwhelming a little bit So, and, and even in this piece. But then to see, to hold on to that little flicker of the light to see what sport actually does for the likes of Oksana Masters is fantastic and... There's a welter of stories like that with, throughout the Paralympics especially.
2: You don't get the impression from the piece that the monsters in that orphanage have suffered any great consequences. Don't get that impression. Mm. So how she digests and processes the anger beyond me.
0: Yeah, like, the, like I said, it's just hugely, hugely inspiring. But I totally agree with you. And it, 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 can, it can be a bit cheesy to say you know, the, yeah. the role of sport, but like it should never be underestimated. Yeah. I spoke up there about, you know, in terms of United fans, you know, are they just not going to go? But like for some people, that is your outlet at the yeah. weekend. That keeps you kind of on the straight and narrow. You know, your whole week is building up to it. So um, we probably get caught up in it because we're working in it, you know, all the time. But like when when you step back and look at it, kind of the bigger picture, the role that sport plays just shouldn't be underestimated Absolutely. at all like yeah. for, for anyone really, I don't think. Amazing yeah. uh, piece, Sunday Independent, pages
2: 16 17, Oksana Masters, uh, well worth reading about. On the rugby front, Keen, which is very much your beat, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting paper review in that we haven't actually, you know, the, the main uh, mm. sp- sporting pillars. It's quiet-ish, uh, Manchester United aside, although the Premier League race is very interesting at the moment, to be fair, and there are lots of match reports. On the rugby front, it's always difficult when Italy is the gap game. So you've got, a l- you, to be fair, there was a nice few days for everybody to uh, parse through the Fran- French game, but then it's not like in the papers this week there's the same build up to, oh, Italy next week, how will things go? And then it'll be the same the week after that. So best of luck <laughs> with all of that, I, I suppose. Uh, I mean, there's interviews with Ian Henderson, which we're doing and there. You know, he's talking about how great a culture Andy Farrell has created. And he harked back to when he was having child in 2020 England game and Andy Farrell said listen you decide if it's family time first go be with your family and and Henderson's making the point this wasn't like a veiled Mm -hmm. (laughs) thread it wasn't like you pick your family and you'll never play for me again and so he's praising Andy Farrell Uh, One of the more interesting uh, questions is asked by Neil Francis Uh, Hamstring injuries at Leinster are not far off an epidemic Coaches need to find out why Uh, Right now Gibson Park Keane Healy Dan Sheehan Ronan Kelleher have and have had issues with their hamstring Tig Furlong Soft tissue injuries, back, hamstring, calf, they're all interrelated. James Lowe is at a calf issue, kept him out for a long time. Um, Robbie Henshaw, hamstring issue uh, for a good chunk of the season. Harry Byrne went on the tour to New Zealand, had to be sent home, hamstring issue. He says, it's interesting to note that only Elliot Daly and Tom Curry of England have a hamstring issue out of all the other starting players in every country in the Six Nations. How is that? So Ireland have so many, it seems. England have two, the other countries have none. And he says, I'm afraid I have no answers for you. Is it something that Leinster are doing in the weights room? The 4G uh, playing field conspiracy theories could be trotted out. He uh, mentions overload will always leave you susceptible to soft tissue situations. I'm being told Leinster train and play at pace. New Zealand always train and play at full pace. There are, however, rarely any hamstring injuries amongst the Kiwis. Everyone hydrates, everyone stretches, everyone warms up and warms down. What are Leinster doing wrong? Ireland, and by extension Leinster, fittest uh, team In their uh, respective competitions, that but they have to be able to train at whatever speed they train at, but without these consequences. What's happening?
0: Yeah, what's the answer, Keen? Yeah, I certainly don't know. Um, (laughs) I had to laugh though when I saw um, Kiwis don't get uh, hamstring injuries. I mean, everyone gets you know soft tissue injuries. Look, I suppose the obvious thing would be to say. And Neil Francis does kind of touch on it that it's a consequence of you know Ireland's Ireland 2.0 and the speed that they're playing at. By all accounts, they were flogged in in Portugal in the lead up to the the Wales game. Um, but like, if given the year that's in it with the World Cup coming along, you'd imagine that they're going to be digging deep into into figuring out why it is happening. But it's Bernard Jackman
2: mentions that in his piece. He takes an optimistic view. He says. This is at the end of a long piece about how well everything is going, frankly. But he says one in, one worry has been the increase in soft tissue injuries in the squad. But that often happens as you push your body further than it's been pushed before. And the good thing is the injuries heal and then the new training level becomes the norm. That's the
0: optimistic view, I suppose. Yeah, and the thing about it is... Um the quality in the Ireland squad at the moment means that the, the training has gone through the roof because you have, you know, 15 guys. So, like, next week, 15 guys will be running as Italy. And that could be, you know, let's say, for example, you could have Bundy Aki and Jamie Osborne running as your centres against uh, Stuart McCloskey and Gary Ringrose. And all those guys want to make an impression. You know, they want to be putting their hand up for selection. So, possibly that the standards have gone up across the board and it's just a consequence of that. But it's surprising given the advancements in sports science and things like that, like everything is monitored to the nth degree now in rugby Um and like it, there's no doubt that it is a concern, particularly with what, what I said when you're looking at what's coming down the road, but um to compare it to England having two hamstring injuries, but then you look at the style of rugby that England are playing, so um it, it shouldn't be happening, but is it a consequence of training hard? Like Leinster's, you know, Stuart Lancaster's Tuesday sessions that's, you know, high ball and play time where it's just go, go, go. You know, picking up injuries is going to be, I'd say, part and parcel of it. Now, whatever it was, six or seven in- like hamstring injuries at the same time is concerning. But, um, yeah, there's people paid a lot more money than I am to be sure. coming up with the answers. and. Ireland's you know strength and conditioning has been a big plus I think it's Jason Cowman isn't it who's the SSC coach uh, with them and like that's their kind of their USP at the moment like you think back to the the France game and in the week of it you know James Lowe was kind of fairly bold enough to say that you know we we think we're fitter than France and that was a bit of a cliché over the years, that you know, France's fitness will will be an issue, but they've totally turned that around, and it's less so. But in fairness, it was that's what Ireland, you know, won the game yeah. off because they ran France into the ground. So I don't think you can kind of just say, "Oh, we need to start changing everything we're doing because players are picking up injuries." But it's definitely it's definitely concerned, though, isn't it? No,
1: mm, oh yeah, it would be. And and look, you mentioned it that the the highly paid and highly um, trained minds that are there, if they if they do see a trend, which they should do, on those and those um, figures, it will be identified and it will, will be changed. But from a, a long-term point of view, uh, you don't want to wish injury of any sort, even if it's a sore thumb on anybody. But we've seen already in the Six Nations, it's to Ireland's benefit that there are some established players that are sitting it out. And if you were taking the, the medium-term view towards the World Cup, you would not be disappointed to see a, a few other key players have a twinged hamstring or calf for Italy or for Scotland mm. or or for England down the line, so like yes, they are a concern. But in terms of the people who are, who are missing and in some of the some of the positions they're missing. This is to the long-term benefit of the of the team going forward.
0: And another point as well is like they're they're just such finely tuned athletes that you know it is easy for things to go. Like I think of someone like uh, Robert Balakoon, who unfortunately is quite injury prone, but like he's just such a thoroughbred athlete that you know he's like a sprinter basically. That it's so easy for stuff to go. So that probably plays a part as well. And I was reading, I don't think it was in the Sunday papers, but I'm not sure if you guys saw it. uh, Dominic Calvert Lewin with um, Everton because he's like constantly played yeah. with injuries and now they're going looking at his mattress and what car he's driving and all this kind of stuff like behind the scenes so maybe like Leinster in Ireland will start doing uh, stuff like that but um yeah it's it's I, I'm surprised just because of the in- advancements and yeah. things and now they're talking about going looking at players' mattresses and cars they're driving Damien
2: Duff had to have his car seat changed really in, yeah. Back in the
0: day, yeah yeah
1: Ryan Giggs um who's the Irish player who um whose house was just outside the training ground of the Premier League club and he made the point I, I actually drive I could walk it's probably quicker to walk but I actually drive to the ground it's to kind of you know save the wear and tear on his it was, I don't know 6 or 7 years ago so that are, those are the levels that, yeah, they, yeah. that they go to, you
0: know. The wear and tear for rugby players is obviously yeah. much higher than as well than it is just given the nature of the sport. So, um, yeah, certainly if you were coming up to the World Cup and you're missing this calibre of players, I know Ireland are going really well at the moment but you want everyone on board, don't you? There's yeah.
2: all th- Maybe there'll be like a tapering off approaching the World Cup and they're getting a the heavy load in now.
1: Well, there's, all, there's also the fact, you know, people talk about the the, the lack of workload in Irish players. Mm. You know, that they're they're yeah, not flogged as much as English and French. So are they going 0-60? to 60? Is that is yeah. that part of an issue that's obviously I have zero yeah. background let's, in let's move here. off
2: this topic where we're uh, <laughs> caveating every point with I don't know <laughs> uh, Mick Foley is writing about um, the golf documentary Full Swing on Netflix he, he widely quotes Chad Mum may well have interviewed Chad Mum for this piece and, and he's, he's charting um, making this documentary which is so far debuting very well on Netflix and we'll see if word of mouth keeps it there high in the charts Uh, the Six Nations documentary based on what all the Irish players are saying
0: Jack Honan yeah didn't exactly give it a ring in a door it's going to be terrible
2: (laughs) (laughs) we've given them nothing that seems to have been badly communicated to players management certainly in the Irish camp and so there are doors being closed and there's been a contagion uh, whereby others have heard hang on Ireland aren't cooperating well Mm. we're not cooperating (laughs) unless you're the Italians or the Scots Italians need to promote the game Scott's never going to turn down an interview opportunity uh, but it doesn't seem like we'll be gripped by the Irish uh, camp
0: you look at what happened in Wales the other day when they were sent packing and now that's obviously for different reasons because of the, the, the player revolt that's going on in Wales but the Netflix cameras were sent out oh were they yeah, oh, yeah yeah, yeah. Alan Wynne-Jones told him basically to get out so um, that's interesting <laughs> I look too, forward so. to like next year all was well in the Welsh camp in <laughs> yeah. week two we'll move yeah. on to week four but it's interesting and I'm curious Joe to get your um, take have you binged the full yeah, scene watch most of I've, it I've watched the first three episodes first,
2: um, one's, first one's actually arguably the weakest in some respects yeah, what was um,
0: the first one again Susan Thomas, and Thomas. And
2: oh yeah the, openings, the frenemies. opening frenemies opening scene yeah. of them uh, gambling a thousand a pop yeah. on, uh, can you guess the correct card is it an ace of Clubs, no, it uh, hasn't to me. Uh, yeah, that was the Br- Brooks
0: Koepka one was very, very good. good. Very, very good, good, yeah. Um,
2: but Joel Damon one very was good. great. I, You know, when people said, oh, could this be transformative for the game? It, the big issue with golf is that, you know, each field is 156. There might be 200, 300 players on, on tour. And so, like you know, suddenly I'd be very interested in Joel Damon. Mm, Absolutely. You may not see him very often. Golf throws up a new underdog each week that you don't know of. Whereas in F1, if Joel Damon was one of 20, it's very easy to, you can see why F1 in so many ways lent itself to this uh, production, because you only have to bring a limited number of characters to to life. Whereas Golf, there's an endless amount of characters. But the job they did with Damon, who is like 70 in the world and opens by saying... Someone in the world has to be number 70. Might as well be me and and basically just thinks he's rubbish and everyone is mm. trying to tell him you're much better than you think you are and he he really uh, cooperates with the process
0: I thought. So he was he was great. It's better than I had heard it was. Yeah, yeah that's, the ne- maybe, that's the next yeah. episode that I'm coming to. I feel like I don't need to watch it now. So you do. Ah, it's very no, good. It's very very good. good. The, the interesting thing is because I saw at the end of the third episode that you know, Joel Damon was going to be up next and I would w- watch golf like I'm a big, big golf fan but I don't know anything about Joel Damon. I was kind of going Poulter was the third episode, wasn't he? And I was kind of going, ah, oh, you know, I'd, I want to see like kind of Rory or the bigger guys, but like really like sometimes they have the better stories. And I think that's going to something that's going to happen actually in, in with the Ireland documentary. So from what I heard, two of the players, Andrew Porter and Finlay Beelam, have given access at home to them. So I mean, like I, I wouldn't say you're a casual, you know, sports fan will know a lot about Finlay Beelam, but he's a fascinating character. Very, very quirky, very different and that could be the setting point, you know, of kind of Ireland story because you'll have Johnny Sexton at pressers and all that. But I don't think Johnny Sexton has given them access at home with the kids and stuff. Whereas I don't even know, think he's been interviewed by them.
2: Yeah. So but like the golf, uh, apparently they had 600 hours. Like You actually only need two or three from each camp and you got yourself a documentary. But that, you know? That's
1: what they've done really well. I mean, when you look at the, I've watched, was Damon the fourth episode? Mm.
2: Yeah, so, so I've yeah.
1: watched four of them. They're all so clearly defined.
2: Two players per episode.
1: Yeah, and like you like you say, Joe, you have this mass of characters coming and interchanging all the time. But they got a little bit lucky as well. I mean, the Matt Fitzpatrick stuff.
2: Well, I think what they did is they followed right. a lot of players.
1: But they could have not followed Matt Fitzpatrick they and the next thing he goes not, and wins a major.
2: I think they actually followed so many that right. they, were, they were bound to... Be on the winning horse somewhere, yeah. and then obviously they cast aside yeah. the non-stories and, and go big on Fitzpatrick.
1: But they've they've uh, given that, given the amount of footage, the amount of characters, they've zeroed in very, very well. Mm. You can watch any one of those th- those um, episodes, and it just you don't need anything else. You don't need the context, no. and even in the way they kind of repeat themselves They have one of the, the journalists every time. Golf is a game of four days. Okay, you're yeah, yeah. You know, You know, okay, right, go on. But live like that. I was watching, my wife has zero interest in sport. Okay. But I was actually five minutes into the first episode and thought, she'd, li- she'd like this. Yeah. Trish would like it's, this. It is human driven. It is. Like, it's not
2: it's, it's not exceptional. It's far from exceptional, but it's very watchable. It's oh, very yeah. watchable. Yeah. It'll be good for the sport.
1: What? Like, I, I've heard a few people say uh, a little bit disappointed. I, what else could you... Hope to get from these multi millionaire uh, elite athletes. You know, what else would, I mean? The, the book's Kepka stuff. Yeah, it's
0: was, so vulnerable. So
2: well, like, it's Kepka went for, like, Kepka brought into his home. Yeah. His wife was very comfortable on camera. It was very forthcoming about, like, his lack. So, Kepka was brilliant. Damon was brilliant. I felt like in the case of Speed and Thomas, although Thomas's father was brilliant. Mm. Very yeah. good. the interview in the car was great, yeah. yeah really really like good, my yeah. father treated me very yeah. harshly, so I said I'd yeah. never treat yeah. my son that way. Really I was good, like, yeah. whoa. Yeah. Um, and, and with Rory, I thought, like, with Rory, they have no access beyond the course. Like, there's right. one kind of interesting conversation he has with an executive guy over breakfast that feels very kind of hush-hush, mm. but they know the cameras are there. But like, Rory, family's off-limits, away from the course is yeah. off-limits, and they basically just string out one long interview and... Put Peppers, th- insert yeah. those quotes and yeah. like. There's even like a. I wonder, did Roy insist on? they like, here's two minutes of me doing my charity work uh, okay, and right. my golf pass yeah. thing. So I'm sure there were turn. Term- and he okay, even he, right. he even said he told them, look, you're not going near my family. You can fill me on the course. Is
1: that the last episode?
2: Yeah, and to be fair, it's around the St Andrews thing. But like, you don't, you know, you'd like more there. And, but yeah. I, I think, to be fair, this will be a gateway. A lot of them will look at this and go, oh, yeah.
1: wow. Didn't Shane, Lowry said something like that when he said, no, I'm not doing it, but I'll probably look at it and go.
2: Yeah, and, and a lot of guys will look at Damon and yeah. Kepka and go, oh, that's how you can get an extra million yeah. Twitter followers. You think yeah.
0: back to the Drive to Survive, I think I'm right in saying that Mercedes weren't in it at right. the start and then suddenly they wanted a mm-hmm. piece of the pie as well. So, I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if more people are going to look to get it in. But it, they are pretty intrusive. I think the the camera's, I think um, was it, Keith Wood was on with you guys a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about living with the Lions. You know, they kind of just blend in behind the scenes and that's when you get the best stuff. But like we were, Brent, you were probably there chatting to Gary Ringrose out in the HPC a couple of weeks ago and the the Netflix crew, like they're just kind of popping around, but they just dropped this big kind of sound mic into the huddle. And like Gary Ringrose is like, his train of thought is gone and he's lost his focus. And There there, there is a
2: point in the first one and and I, I hope it, it goes less of this route where it's very set, piecey, and structured. So there's the interviews, which they then pepper the quotes yeah. from mm-hmm. throughout, which are like a bit meh. But then there's a very structured piece where they get Jordan Speed as best man to phone Justin yeah. Thomas. So the cameras just happen to be rolling when yeah. Speed from a car park mm. the phones yeah. Thomas in a car, and the cameras happen to be rolling both sides. <laughs> and like it's a little yeah. back and forth. And it does feel like you're watching Made in Chelsea. It's mm-hmm. very yeah. stilted. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, it's um, very watchable. I don't know. If, I don't know if any sport is going to have the drive to
0: survive effect like well, we that. Were, was insane. Yeah, and you the, mentioned it outside, yeah, and the tennis one I didn't think was great. The tennis Did one was you watch? boring. Yeah, yeah. Was and like I actually boring. like yeah. I would have been you know casual watch Wimbledon and all that, but when I saw the names that were in the tennis I realised how out of touch I was I didn't really know a lot of the players but they didn't have that appeal like I'm looking forward to watching Joel Damon now just from what you are saying but I didn't come away with it going oh, I can't wait to see how this fire yeah, girl the, 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 gets the, on the Damon one will really surprise you because I was like
2: I'm not that bothered mm. but mm-hmm. then it was maybe the best episode Yeah, I think I was worried about the golf one when the theme of the trailer over and over again was a bunch of players saying it's really hard to win on tour <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the stuff of Anodyne Saturday yeah. Yeah. that they give all the time yeah but there's a lot more in the golf one, whereas I felt too much of the tennis was. It's really hard out here. Yeah,
1: yeah. I didn't get beyond the Nick Kyrgios opener. But that's that's the the I think one. I think I watched that, that in four yeah. chunks.
2: Right, yeah. so, Kyrgios uh, is the best one, yeah. and yeah. I, I lost after episodes yeah. two and three. I was like, "Oh, this yeah. is terrible."
0: Yeah, yeah. You, 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 the only thing it is, you get a little bit of an insight into how unglamorous life on on tour is for lots of yeah. these people, unless you're unless you're Roger Federer or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I was disappointed in it, though. Yeah, I didn't come away going. Oh, I'm definitely going to be looking out for this person see how they're getting on you know whereas Joel Damon sounds like he's going to be my new favourite golfer
2: <laughs> he really will yeah. and like again if there were fewer golfers and you would have a chance of seeing Damon this Sunday or the Sunday after it would be, yeah. be really good yeah. are you going to be one of the dudes going rugby is a game where you get seven points for yeah. so <laughs>
0: well, I think call
1: it oh, I'd, look, I'd pay to see that now
0: <laughs> as you were saying I was that's worth your who, subscription who alone who will they get to, to do that so
2: yeah I must uh, well so you sorry, think they surely will get the young cool
0: up and coming yeah, to don't you know about that. Yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> You're like, Thornley, out of here. Tracy's here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my phone is on, Joe. My phone is on. Come and
1: um, get me, says Tracy. Come you know, get
2: me, pee, yeah. <laughs> We don't have time to cover anything else. Just to mention, I think Eamon Sweeney has rightly highlighted something that we must do more of a piece on. Uh, the Irish Athletic Boxing Association, they're boycotting the World Championships. So, you know, Amy Broadhurst, Lisa O'Rourke won me- gold medals in Istanbul last year. Uh, On account of Umar Kremlev and Gazprom and Putin and their involvement in the International Boxing Association, USA said, we're not going to the World Championships. The Irish Association was in at number two to say, we're not going to them. And since then, Canada, Sweden, Great Britain, Czech Republic have also pulled out. So it's kind of interesting to watch what's happening here in boxing. And Eamon Sweeney says, you know, let's salute this. This is not an empty gesture when you're Ireland and you're passing up the chance of medals. I feel desperately sorry for the athletes like this is horrendous for them mm. uh, you know we talk about the grubby side of politics and sports so that is worth to mention fellas we are out of time uh, King Tracy of the Irish Independent thank you very much sure. best to look in Rome someone's got to do it yeah. buddy you just hang in there and, and you know the good gigs will come down the line my voice over career as well yeah, yeah. and Brendan O'Brien <laughs> Irish Examiner thank you cheers Joe have you subscribed to the OTB football podcast
1: Probably for a little over a year. It's been my intention and my desire to play play for Ireland.
0: Subscribe now to the OTB Football podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app.